welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only, do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is Eric Mira. Eric is a consultant physiotherapist in Portland, Oregon. Eric is known as the science PT and is gifted at exploring and explaining the application of science to physical therapy practice. Eric is also the OG and pioneer of physical therapy podcasts. And I know I have personally learned a great deal from Eric's public musings over the last decade. This episode is a bit different. Instead of dealing with a mundane clinical issue or condition, we talk about science. We do our best to bring it back to clinical practice, but we do go deep into the realms of philosophy of science, metaphysics, and I make no apology for that. Seriously though, this was one of my most enjoyable and thought-provoking conversations to date and I strongly encourage you to give it a listen. Before we start the podcast, a quick note from our sponsor, Clinico. Clinico is a practice management software that's used by 65,000 practitioners worldwide. It's great for busy physios, which is why it's an endorsed partner of the Australian Physiotherapy Association and the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy in the UK. You'll find everything you need to run a successful physio practice in one place, like treatment notes, digital forms, online booking tools, customizable body charts, and much more. Clinico meets privacy legislation for Australia, the UK, the US, and Canada. So wherever you're based, Clinico will help keep you compliant. Charitable donations and giving back are a big part of Clinico. A minimum of 2% of all Clinico subscriptions are donated to charity each month which means more than 1 million Australian dollars in total has been donated since Clinico was founded. Shoulder Physio podcast listeners can get 60 days for free. Signing up takes less time than this message. Visit clinico.com forward slash shoulder hyphen physio. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Eric Mira. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Shoulder Physio podcast. Very special guest today, Eric Mira. Eric, how are you, mate? No, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Eric, I was just chatting to you a moment ago. You are the OG. You are the original podcaster in the physical therapy space. When did you start, Eric? Give us a little bit of the history there because I find it quite fascinating. Yeah. So the, the first show was originally called PT Podcast, which actually still exists. It's actually run by Scott Greenberg and uh, Jason Torrey now, which was just an interview show. That started back in uh, late 2011. Uh, recorded the first episode, I think it's September of 2011. And then PT Inquest, me and my second guest from PT Podcast, which was J.W. Matheson, upon finishing that podcast, we're like, hey, we should do a journal club type thing. Because back then you you bought like a packet of um, bandwidth, basically. And I had way more than I needed for the one <laughs> podcast. I was like, you know, it's free for me to do a second one. And so we started PT Inquest, I think it was January or February of 2012. So yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. And it's still going today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I brought in a couple more, you know, JW kind of uh, back down last year and uh, brought in a couple more voices. So we got Jason Torrey and, and Chris Janot and uh, bringing in uh, Megan Graham has been helping out as well. 
And so it's great because I get to step back a little bit and and let other people kind of uh, take up that torch. So I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of passing things along, letting other people step into spaces. Yeah, maybe our politicians could learn from that, Eric. That's a nice, that's a nice <laughs> philosophy. Um, yeah, I, I do. I do. While, while, while we're on your podcast, I do just want to give you a shout out and speak for a lot of others and say thanks for doing it. You've I, I've been a physio for 12, 13 years. And it sort of coincided around the release of your podcast. And I've listened to hundreds of hours. Um, I'm, a, I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say, not, I'm proud to say it's been um, really helpful for me on my journey. So thank you, Eric. It's been really good. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, we're coming up on 300 episodes. And uh, it's funny because when we started it, we didn't think anybody would even listen to it. It was more just an exercise in having these conversations. And we just put it out there. And it, it's amazing how much it's grown and how how many people listen to it. And, and get value out of it, which was always surprising to us. Has it helped you sort of in your journey as well to figure things out and think deeply about certain topics? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of kind of thinking in public. And I, I think that's one of those things that um, we've become really bad at lately because everybody's afraid of saying something that's going to be judged later because everything's kind of recorded. And so when you are kind of spouting off to an audience that's knowledgeable, you have to really think about what you're saying and think about how it's going to come back around uh, to you later. And so it's a, it's a nice exercise in really kind of pumping your brakes, trying to consider everything and and being uh, from, from that perspective. And, and, and again, that's also kind of from how we approached it. There are definitely people out there who just have an agenda and they're going to push that through no matter what. Um, but ours was always trying to, to be as honest and transparent as possible through that. And that's definitely helped me. Um, there's definitely articles that we reviewed on the podcast that I probably wouldn't have read otherwise, but it was just a matter of, Hey, we gotta, we gotta put something out. Let's find an article real quick. And it's like, Oh, wow, that was a really interesting article. So, you know, it definitely helped me. And then, and then again, as I said, it, it helped me be kind of a, a little bit of a public thinker, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's quite a vulnerable thing to do, Eric, as I'm starting to find out, you know, you, you, yeah. you, you're sort of on record a number of times with hundreds of hours of, of you talking into a microphone to somebody else. It almost feels like a private conversation, but thousands of people listen to it. So, but I think that gets to the core of today's chat, which is about, which is about science, right? And you mm -hmm. kind of, it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to evolve your thoughts and your thinking. And it's so in fact, isn't that isn't that the crux of science? Like being wrong is a feature; it's not a bug of science. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, science, you know, this goes back to Descartes, uh, the the cogito. I think, therefore, I am, which is uh, the root of what that means is that there's nothing you can know for certain other than that you exist. So, meaning that you can never be right, but what you can be is wrong. And so, what you can do is do the best you can to be less wrong. That would be Isaac Asimov's favorite famous saying is the effort to be less wrong. And so what you're trying to do is identify where things that you know not to be true and steer yourself away from that. So science is weirdly a very strong embracing of uncertainty, which a lot of people see it as the opposite. They see it as being very certain and very kind of strident in, in your beliefs. But the way science works is that you can be strident in your beliefs and certain about things that are not true, but that is a very narrow slice that takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to establish. Yeah. So one of my favorite philosophies is, is Karl Popper. And I mean, that's almost echoes entirely his philosophy in that 
we can never know the truth. Newton thought he was right. Well, he was right in some respects, operationally right. But when it comes to gravity, he was proven wrong, right? So you can never know the actual truth. We can perhaps get closer to something resembling the truth by steering yeah. away from things that are obviously false. Yeah. And so Popper was a contemporary of Albert Einstein. And that's where that those two kind of come together with Newton mm -hmm. is that, you know, Newton's uh, classical mechanics, which is how we describe everything I teach is classical mechanics. I mean, that's Newtonian physics, but it's not right. It's just, as you said, operationally useful. But when you get into larger structures like planets <laughs> and things moving close to the speed of light, like light, that's where Einstein's relativity comes in. And that's basically what Karl Popper had looked at is he kind of stepped back and asked the question, what makes Einstein scientific, but Freud not? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and it was that idea of falsifiability, the idea that, well, what you do is you try to disprove. And so Einstein famously said, no study can prove me right, but one study can prove me wrong. So you can have like 20 studies in support, but none of them can prove you right. One study by itself, if done properly, can refute you. Uh, and that's, that's how science works. Yeah. No matter how many white swans you see in a row, it doesn't mean all swans are right as well, right? That's exactly right. Got to come down under to Australia. But, so before we get into the meat of the chat, Eric, I just want to catch up with, with where you're at because I know I really want to talk about a lot of these things, but I've just got to intro you a little bit for the three people that haven't heard of you. So what are you doing these days, mate? I know you've, um, you've have you stepped back from, did you sell your clinic or something? And, and what, what are you up to these days? Yeah. So uh, I sold my clinic back in late 2019 uh, with actually the goal of kind of switching to, you know, I tried to sell to a group that would let me kind of shift a little more towards like residency type programs. So, so again, trying to foster more education type things that didn't really pan out. These companies are for profit. They wanted me to be seeing patients at actually a higher volume than what I was doing as an owner. And uh, and then the pandemic hit and that pretty much erased everything. And so uh, then I pretty much went into full-time consultation and education. And so putting on, you know, online courses, uh, I immediately started those, you know, with the pandemic still was doing my in-person stuff when when it could resume and then doing consulting and mostly with professional athletes and some universities uh, here in the United States. Uh, and then the big thing I have coming up is actually coming up this weekend, which may be after this episode comes out, uh, is our elite basketball rehab conference, which we're doing with the NBA or not with the NBA, but at the NBA Summer League with a bunch of NBA uh, individuals uh, or people who work in the NBA presenting for it. Uh, we have about, we're probably going to have a total of between 150 and 200 people that actually show up. So it's going to be a pretty big event. And I'm kind of, um, I'm almost bald because of pulling all my hair out <laughs> for putting this on. But but that's kind of my big, big thing right now. I'm really passionate about it because I what we're trying to do is connect people who want to get involved in that level of sport with the people who are, are involved with that level of sport and trying to make those connections to help diversify the avenues to get into that level of, mm. of physical therapy. Awesome. And so you are you a basketball fan, Eric, or is this just a coincidence that it's in basketball? I do like basketball. Uh, I do enjoy it. It's one of my favorite sports, but I just happen to do a lot of consulting with the NBA right now. I take care of a couple NBA athletes. And so I just am very, very well connected with it. And then there is this interesting convenience with the NBA is that they have a summer league, which is in Las Vegas. All the teams are there for two weeks. And it's very kind of informal. The games don't matter. It's just this, this interesting little league where they get to kind of test out their new and upcoming players. And so all the staffs are just kind of there with not a ton to do. And so I was like, I'll give you guys something to do if you want to all come together. 
And so it, it really comes as a matter of convenience. We're I'm trying to find ways to expand it to other sports like American football uh, or potentially um, uh, soccer or regular football to the rest of the world uh, to do it uh, around some of those. But the difficulty is finding when all the teams are in the same city. That's definitely a challenge. So you're enjoying this sort of next chapter of your career, Eric? I am because what I'm really passionate about is trying to help others coming up behind me. I found when I was coming up, uh, to, to, I came across a lot of difficulty, a lot of roadblocks, and I felt like I was just just hacking my own way through a jungle to try to get to reach my own personal goals. And I found it very frustrating and kind of a, a mantra to myself as I wanted to make it that it wouldn't be like that for others. That's the crux of the education I do is this is like all the things I've learned here. I want to teach you guys that so that you don't have to do all the work I did to figure out like basic physics, something that we should be taught in school. But I'm shocked at how poorly as a profession, we understand just just the basics of physics, which underlies you know a lot of what we do. Yeah. Awesome. I, I love it. So what do you do for fun? Currently, I'm trying to finish up my instrument rating for flying. So I'm I'm a private pilot. So most of my free time is is rooted in that right now, which is it, it's great. It's kind of meditative. Uh, it's it's cool because you know when you're flying a plane, you can't think about anything else. <laughs> you pretty much are very focused on what you're doing. But there's a lot of really fascinating things around it that really kind of fits my personality. Is that there's like any like rule that you're following is there for a very specific reason and they can cite the incident. It's like the reason we do this is because back, you know, 30 years ago, there was a plane that crashed because this cascade of events. And so you're constantly looking for how do these cascades work? And so what's really cool is that causation matters very much in the aviation world. And so it's not a matter of we think this might cause a problem. It's, well, does it cause a problem or does it not? And how do we know? And so it's it's really fascinating to look through the, you know, the the education of learning how to fly an airplane. You have to learn the history of all aviation developments and why things are the way that they are. And then, you know, if you buy a plane, that plane is going to have a long history of every incident that's ever happened and why they happen. And so it's really kind of cool from that perspective, from the analytical side. But then on the other side, you have to fly by feel. I mean, you are, you know, you got to connect yourself to the airplane. The winds are constantly changing in real time. And how are you kind of blending with that? So it also has this interesting kind of dance that you're doing well as well. That's very intuitive. So it's a really kind of cool uh, combination of the two. Art and science. It sounds, um, it sounds yeah. really familiar, actually. Yeah. Um, and, and Eric, what's your, what's your, this is, a, this is somewhat think this is a funny question, but I'm really interested in not just in successes, but failures. So what's, what do you reckon has been your biggest failure to, to date? And it, it doesn't have to be like a dramatic failure, but just something that perhaps you've learned from. <laughs> well, I will say, uh, you know, contrary to what a lot of people think is, um, understanding like, like the business side of things I've never been great at. Uh, I, I just, my attention span's kind of short. <laughs> Once, you know, uh, I heard somebody mentioning actually earlier today, I was reading something about um, 
driven by curiosity, not by completion of projects. <laughs> and so a lot of my failures kind of re revolve around, you know, taking on something, thinking it would potentially like generate, like this is a successful business <laughs> and it kind of uh, failing from that perspective. You know, professionally, I would say, you know, especially as a new clinician, learning to embrace uncertainty. I have a lot of failures around believing I had answers to things and then recognizing later that, no, I don't have any answers to anything. And that's why I don't think I've written much about it. I know I've talked about it in the lectures I do in some of the online courses. I kind of find, follow what I call a Socratic method to working with patients, which is the belief that you actually don't have the answers, but you can have the questions. And so you help people through questions, not through answers. And that's that's something that thinking I had the answers way back when, that was you know a big failure on my part uh, with a lot of patients where it's like... <laughs> I almost had a moment where like I wanted to go through my old patient list and get on the phone and just start calling them and saying, Hey, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm look thinking back about your case and oh my gosh, how I was not giving you the information that would have been most helpful for you. Um, you know, we probably had a successful outcome. Uh, and they probably were very satisfied and they're not aware, but I'm looking back going, Man, I I I could have helped them in such a better way than I did. Yeah. I've um, ruminated and meditated on the same thing a long time. I've made, I've made memes about it, actually. And I think a lot of people can relate to it because in your first five years of practice, hey, you're just trying to survive. And we're doing the best we can, right? And, and with pressures, external pressures, if you're in private practice, there's boss pressures, there's this pressures, there's that pressure. So it's challenging. So I've got to forgive a lot of physios, but it is good to reflect on it and go, I've, yeah, I've yeah. And, and that's where I, I, this is almost a life lesson is to, you know, to anybody listening, I'll tell you right now, you are not perfect. You will never be perfect. Do not expect that you are going to do things perfectly. You will fail. You will mess up. And that is totally fine and acceptable. Have the same compassion for others in that regard as well. They are not perfect. They will fail. And it is not a failing of them as a person because people are imperfect. And so giving yourself that kind of okay it can be really kind of liberating. Uh, you know, obviously you don't go through life and you're like, whatever, <laughs> you know, I, oops, I crashed into somebody with my car. Uh, I'm not perfect. You know, you're doing the best you can, but, but understand that doing your bet the best you can does not mean you're going to be successful hundred percent of the time. Yeah. So this is the idea of, of fallibilism. Humans err, humans fail, but it's sort of, I think the key thing is here is the response to that. What do you learn from that? Do you evolve? Do you get better? Or you just go, well, that failure wasn't my fault. That was the patient's fault. They didn't do their exercises or that was some, some other person's fault, right? So I think that's a really crucial point. Fallibilism or being wrong is at the heart of learning and progress and, and getting better. So this kind of goes to the next question, Eric, a little bit. So you're the science PT. Where did science, where did this passion for science come from? Was it inherent from a young age? Were you interested in science at school? Did it develop over time? Was there a light bulb moment where did, did an apple hit you on the head when you were walking around <laughs> and you pondered on the laws of physics? What was it? No, ever since I was a small child, uh, I've just always been passionate about science uh, in general. So the natural world and that kind of thing, you know, I would, as a small kid, I would just watch you know, nature shows and then anything to do with physics. Uh, I just always found to be uh, very, very cool. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, later in life, I, I, it was pointed out to me that I'm uh, technically on the autism spectrum, which was uh, very enlightening for me. It, it was 
very freeing for me because there are a lot of things about me personally that I would beat myself up about as to, well, why can't I be better at these social situations and things like that? And then I just realized, oh, that's just not me. I'm literally not wired for that. And so then thinking back about all the things that that always drove me, and it was always that analytical thinking about, you know, how the world works that, you know, always was kind of a passion for me. And, you know, both my parents, uh, my my mom was a, was a school teacher and my father was an electrical engineer and they're both uh, Cuban refugees. So it come from, you know, totalitarian, you know, environments and things like that. And where a cult of personality basically can drive everything. And so I always had it kind of, you know, instilled in me that, you need evidence. Don't just go by with how well somebody speaks. You actually have to get down to those, what we what we call those uh, kind of root principles. Where does a concept ground itself and then how does it grow from there uh, has always been kind of a, a passion for me you know, from a, as a kid. I used to do little science experiments as a kid, you know, testing out different detergents on clothes and I did a whole project on the physics of waves because uh, I was kind of into surfing when I was in high school, and so I did a whole project of how waves propagate and and the difference between a sound wave and a and a uh, a light wave versus a wave on an ocean and how they they work together and all all fascinating things that that <laughs> may be very boring to people in general. Well, I think it just shows your character and your person. It sounds a lot like Richard Feynman. I just read his book on on how he grew up, always tinkering, always trying to explain and figure things out. I think it's either in, inherent or it isn't. I mean, maybe to be honest, I I wasn't. I was more of an active sort of sporting kid, and my love for science kind of grew out of that later on. Actually, more after I was interested in injury and and pain and medicine than my love for science sort of grew after that. So perhaps you can come into it later, but especially physics, it it feels like there's an innate curiosity of the natural world, which is sort of there from a young age. Yeah, for sure. And physics is one of those, you know, I teach a lot of what I teach is, is biomechanics and people are like, well, you know, biomechanics don't always matter. And they'll talk psychosocial and all that stuff. It's like, no, you're misunderstanding what biomechanics means. It's literally in the word. It's the interface of biology with the mechanical world. That is what we do as humans. Now it is connected to a brain for sure, but it still has to engage with the natural world. So that interface of the natural world, that is biomechanics. So the, what I like to point out is because people are like, well, where the knee is in space doesn't matter. It's like, well, it, it doesn't, but the forces around it do. And you know, biomechanics is how we explain how water moves up a stock, how a nerve propagates a signal. You know, that's all still you know where biology meets you know the the real world, so to speak, the physical world. And so, to me, that was always the underlying math of life. Basically, it's not just a ball, you know, a ball rolling down a hill or something. It's it's uh, then how does an organism interact with that in all the fascinating ways that 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 happens? You know, you think of something like weather systems, for example. That's all physics going on there, but it's so complicated of a stew that to unpack it all. I mean, to me, it's the coolest thing ever because it's so complicated. But um, you know, at the end of the day, it produces a storm. Yeah, no, it's somewhat predictable. Yeah, you're right. I want to go back is just a moment, sort of backtrack a fraction. You said something really interesting to me, how your parents were, were Cuban immigrants to the US and they came from this totalitarian, authoritarian regime. And that I just straight away sort of related that to science, right? Which is the opposite. It should be the opposite of, it's nullius in verba, right? Take no one's word for it, which is what these authoritarian regimes actually are. And so 
are you reflecting back there and going, well, perhaps that shaped my curiosity of science, sort of going against this authoritarian way of thinking and sort of opening up creativity and, and critical thought? Or were you aware of that from a young age? Yeah, so... Science is, is there's a lot of different ways science has been described. You talked about the, um, you know, Karl Popper's falsification, falsifiability. Uh, you know, you could talk about David Hume's induction, Descartes, you know, with uh, the lack of the, the lack of certainty. But one of the things that's highlighted uh, that I really like to go back to is what are known as the Mertonian norms of science, also known as the, the Kudo norms. Um, and so that's communalism, universalism, uh, universalism, I mean, uh, disinterestedness and organized skepticism. And so these kind of things are all rooted in this idea of getting away from groupthink in general and transparency and the openness of, sh you know, sharing and then being skeptical. You know, I think you mentioned Richard Feynman before, and he would talk about that all the time is it doesn't matter who said it. It matters to you. How do you support the ideas? Uh, what is it based in? Uh, what is it rooted in? And so, you know, totalitarian regimes are exactly the opposite. They are trying to close conversations. They are trying to induce certainty. I mean, I, I don't want to get into left wing versus right wing politics, but it's all the same. Uh, you know, you'll see people who will say, oh, well, don't admit that because that undermines our cause. It's like <laughs> the truth never undermines a cause. If your cause is undermined by truth, then you have the wrong cause. <laughs> you need to take a step back and let the, those conversations happen and, and be okay with somebody saying, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical about this idea. Let's discuss it. And that's where, you know, being able to lay something out from its, you know, again, its kind of first principles, you know, is really important. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, coming from, you know, being raised by a family that went through all of that, uh, that's definitely, uh, and I mean, Cuba is what it is. There's plenty of examples around the world. And even in free societies, you have groups that try to, to push these kinds of agendas. So you definitely see them. But it is the antithesis of, of science. You know, you can look at um, who was a Lushenko from the Soviet Union, who was like their like the director of agriculture or whatever. He basically decided that, you know, there's certain certain scientific ideas that were anti-Marxism. Therefore, they couldn't be true. And so they ignored them. And then it created a massive famine. And it's like, no, it's, you know, <laughs> you can't argue with reality. That's, you know, no matter how much you want it to be true. I agree wholeheartedly. I, I kind of I'm reminded of a quote here by by Popper, and he says, "Every idea, every opinion is valid, but every idea and every opinion is open to criticism." And I think that yes. sort of gets to the heart of what you're saying. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I think is really important for people to understand. Uh, and I teach this uh, very specifically: do not identify with your beliefs. That is the most dangerous thing you can do because the second you identify with your belief, any attack on your belief is an attack on your identity. And that is extremely dangerous because you will not tolerate attack on your identity. And so what I always teach people is um, when when they you know, as you interact with the world, your brain is automatically going to explain what you're seeing. It's just creating a structure for you to get by with the world. So you see an event happen, you create some sort of causation to it as a way to start thinking about it. Um, the problem you have is that you become committed that that must be the answer. And your brain almost never goes to the right spot first. 
And so what I always recommend people do is just take a quick step back and say, what are all the other ways I could explain how this happened? You don't have to believe any of them. And they can be all nonsense. I mean, just whatever, just make up stuff. What are all the ways? And, and the funny thing is, is a lot of times the most absurd thing you then take a step back from and go, hey, actually, wait a minute, <laughs> let me think that through. And you start to go, okay, well, following this line of reasoning, we end up over here and that's a really interesting space to be. Let me really think through this. The other thing is, and, and I call it like alternative hypothesis generation, meaning you are just coming up with lots of different explanations for what you saw. You get to own all of them because you came up with all of them. So when one of them is attacked, you're not worried because you've got all these other ones as well. And so the more broad you are in your attempts at explaining things in lots of different kind of crazy ways, the more you are able to shift as evidence shifts. Because um, as we talked about, you know, if you have like 20 different hypotheses, what'll start to happen is some are gonna get refuted and you'll easily let go of them because you're not holding them precious. And so as you lose more and more to falsification, you're only left with a handful of possibilities. Again, none of them being 100% accurate, but they all are kind of orbiting around, quote unquote, the truth, which you can never access. And I think that's really important to have that kind of flexibility. Yeah, 100%. And that's really well said. We, we, I've, I've, been in, I've been through stages when I sort of have held beliefs a little bit too close and I've had to really think and it's got uncomfortable when evidence comes out, especially in the last five years with this mechanism or mediation analysis research, which has come out that has refuted a lot of our explanations for how our treatments work. And I've had to take a step back and go, right, how do I explain this to a patient? You know, like if I'm prescribing exercise, how does it work? We actually don't know. So I've now got several hypotheses of how exercise may help. And how about this, right? The hypotheses, the hypotheses I will invoke will be different perhaps for each person based on their clinical presentation. Do you have anything to add to that? Oh yeah, absolutely. That's and and uh, you know, I find it funny a lot of times come at people come at me with what they think I believe. <laughs> and they're they're attacking and I was just like, I don't Bro, you know, I've got twelve well, hypotheses here. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, people say uh, you believe quad strengthening is 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 the most important thing for uh, for ACL rehab, and I'm like. No, I believe that monitoring the quad and assessing when it has come back online fully is a key part. Hence, I say it's the quads until it's not the quads. But that's what I'm saying is that's your indicator. Now, I'm not saying you can actually willfully change it. Now, yeah, I would do a program that pokes at it and it's loading it. But I'm not saying that if you do three sets of 10, oh, no, wait, God forbid, three sets of 10. If you do, let me see, four sets of eight. Because strength and conditioning principles here, Eric, come on. Yeah, I mean, what am I doing? <laughs> so if you do uh, four sets of eight, for sure, you know, not three sets of seven, that'll kill you. Um, but if you do four, you know, four sets of eight for however long at this dose is whatever, that you're going to will your way past that quad deficit. It's like, no, no that's absurd. Uh, and I, I don't believe that, but people will say I do. And, and again, you'll, you'll notice what I actually will, the statements I actually make end up being very vague in kind of, this is what we are pretty certain about that. There is something about when that quad comes back online, that is an indicator that this person has moved into a phase that their return to sport is going to be a lot safer. And I can explain all the reasons having a quad deficit can drive problems if they try to force themselves back, but that does not tell me how that intervention is going to work. 
just how we're tracking it. And so it's very specific to, and, and you know, I talk about this a lot of being very, very clean in your in your interpretation of evidence. Don't overinterpret. Really think about, okay, what exactly is this study saying? So I don't add conclusions to what I'm seeing that aren't actually there. There's a, a, a philosopher, uh, Wittenstein, who was, uh, he has a very funny comment where somebody was talking about uh, the fact that uh, the earth goes around the sun. And, his, you know, this other person's comment was that, oh, well, they, you know, we believed that the sun revolved around the earth because look at all the evidence when you look outside. And Wittgenstein's reply was, well, what's the evidence look like if the earth is going around the sun? Exactly what we see. So it's just your interpretation that's flawed. It's not your evidence necessarily. So interpretation is your most dangerous thing. And that's where it's, you got to really dial back. And, you know, I talk about that in my foundations course where I give examples of, okay, here's, here's a study. Now, what exactly does that study actually say? And then I give all the examples of how people, what they think it means as far as how they interpret it and how they implement it. It's like, no, it doesn't mean those things at all. It means this very narrow thing right here. And then what are you going to do with that? And the reality, and this is what you're getting at when you talk about like exercise for, I don't know, like OA or something like that. There's this huge cascade of forks of possibilities that come out of that. And what's probably the reality is that the reason it works for one individual may be a completely different avenue than the reason it works for another individual. And so this is where I'm a big fan of just spitballing with the with the patient and be like, hey, here's all the things that it might do and might not do. I'm also not saying, because you know, I'll say, you know, spending time with your family, their quality time is probably going to make your osteoarthritis feel better. You could do that. You know, it's just, you know, managing your stress better and and exercise may be a way that people are managing stress. And that's the effect. That's what's actually the exercise is doing. It has nothing to do with strength, it has nothing to do with blood flow, it has nothing to do with getting uh, fluid exchange or whatever, all these other explanations we have for it, that we have very little evidence that it that is causal. And so just pitching it to them of, hey, you know what? Exercise seems to work for a lot of people. Here's the potential mechanisms. Play with them as you see. If it seems to be working for you, great. And if not, let's explore some other options that might be most effective for you. Oh, perfect. That's exactly how I practice. Uh, you you reviewed one of um, my papers, Eric, on your show, and you did a great oh, job. Sorry. And we found uh, we found there were over thirty different causal explanations or mechanisms for the effect of exercise for rotator cuff tendinopathy. Over thirty different mechanisms in clinical research, yeah. which have been proffered or proposed by clinical researchers, none of them proven. None of nope. them actually really tested. There's only one mediation analysis ever been conducted in shoulder pain um, for exercise, which is criminal and yet we have all these theories about it it's fun so the overinterpretation thing is also hilarious we see this on twitter every day we see a paper gets released a, a fascinating clinical trial or systematic review gets released and there'll be 58 different interpretations of the same data and that just vindicates precisely what you're saying this interpretation based on your bias and based on what you see it's really quite hard to watch sometimes when we see these debates going on and on on social media and you can just if you take a step back, you can see it's bias against bias. What, yeah. what do you think when you watch these debates? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, first off, it, it's the most frustrating thing. It's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I started bringing more people into PT Inquest because, you know, you do it for 10 plus years, you really start getting frustrated with the body of literature that you keep seeing these studies, like like you're pointing out, is where they, they did exercise for tendinopathy and outcome is positive. 
therefore my mechanism that I'm using to explain it must be true. And it's like, that is not how this works at all. And it's what's frustrating is it's the same damn study over and over and over again. Can we just get the understanding that you need to go back to the mechanism and test the mechanism? Because if you claim exercise does a thing, first off, you have to show like, so let's look at um, uh, like infectious disease. Let's make it very black and white here. So somebody comes in with a fever, you know, all these symptoms. This is what they're complaining about. This is the thing that they're upset about. You then establish that there is a very high rate of a certain microbe in this individual. Uh, so you're, you're making a correlation between those two. Then you're going to do an intervention of an uh, antibiotic or something like that that you're going to give them. That antibiotic results in a decrease in the microbe or, or the bacterium uh, or bacteria in this respect, um, which then coincides with their change in symptoms. So you have this kind of network of things. You don't just like throw them in an ice bath and say their temperature went down, therefore the ice bath cured them of whatever was causing their symptoms. It's like, no, you just treated the symptoms and that doesn't have anything to do with causation. You know, it just has to do that the symptoms change. Now, it's possible that ice somehow kills the bacteria. And so you inadvertently did treat the cause, but you have no understanding of that mechanism. And it keeps you from actually being more direct and intentional about what you are addressing. And so we see this all the time with our literature where it's like, can we just, and this is something I've been pushing the profession for years to do, can we have some sort of an agenda here collectively where we say, here's the question we need to answer first. Then once we answer that question, then that creates these three questions. Now those three questions need to get answered. And then the answers to those three questions create 16 different questions. And you see how it kind of builds our knowledge base. This is the problem. Newton even talked about this, of, of this intention to answer all the questions in one generation. It's like, no, you need to find the questions you can answer well and answer those and let the next generation take it from there. Understanding you are not going to have the final answer. What we keep trying to do is do a study that answers the final question of, quote unquote, what do we do? And we don't move ahead in any way. Now, sure, there's value to those things, but we don't need 2,000 studies of it. <laughs> we got the gist of it. You, you rub on something, it feels better. Okay, good. Established. Honestly, I don't need a study to tell me that. I can do that to a patient and they go, I feel better. That was all I needed. I don't need research to be telling me that. So stop doing those studies, you know, and, and kind of go, let's establish some things better at our kind of base level. It just seems more important. Yeah, we've put the cart before the horse, haven't we? We've, we've gone to effective all these effectiveness studies which have come out comparing things and they're all kind of the same there's over a hundred there's like 150 clinical trials in the shoulder pain which shoulder pain which say it's yeah, it all kind of works like one point out of 10 reduction in in pain or this and that and right we have no idea on the causal mechanisms mechanisms underpinning the treatment and if we did have an idea perhaps we could be more targeted in our treatment which might actually change the effect size well how about we just try that anyway and figure it out first and, right. and instead of just conjecturing and hypothesizing which is fine so clinical we're not we're not sort of denigrating clinical trials here the whole point of a no. clinical trial is to show the average effect of an intervention compared to another group right it's sort of comparative effectiveness you do this this group um, had this result, this group had that result. Let's compare. We're not tr the clinical trial is great from that respect, but it's not designed to elucidate or manifest causal mechanisms. We need a different design there, and yeah, that's and fine. This is where yeah, this is where you know trying to get people to understand you know uh, 
there are like studies that that are putting people into groups. And then there are studies that are moving people from one group to another and differentiating between those two. So an example would be you have a study that says uh, people who can do 15 single leg squats three months after or say six months after an ACL reconstruction have a much lower uh, incidence of second injury. And so our conclusion from that as a profession is that we need to get our patients to be able to do 15 single leg squats by six months. It's No, that study that was described is just putting people into groups and saying at six months, and you know, I go into much more detail on these kind of things of, of how you would actually even make the statement that I'm going to make, which is a lot more than just this one study. But that one study is basically saying at six months, you can categorize people into likely to have a second injury, not likely to have a second injury. By making somebody be able to do 15 single leg squats by six months, that does not move them from one group to the other. You think it's moving them from people who are going to get a second injury to people who aren't, but you're not necessarily doing that. That that's at least that study is not saying that you will do that. That gets more into an intervention study. And we saw this with hop testing. You know, hop tests were the, you know, there are studies that came out that showed you test them at six months. If their hop tests look bad, their likelihood of a second injury is going to go way up. So we started working really hard at hop testing or at hopping got everybody better at hopping, but we didn't solve the underlying thing that was the root problem for the original cohort, which is that they can't decelerate uh, using the anterior knee. Uh, and so we basically taught a bunch of people how to how to hop, but it didn't actually translate to any sort of injury prevention for them for that second injury because it didn't sort the original problem. And so, you know, again, this gets back to being very disciplined in your interpretation of a study. Study does not say getting them to do the 15 squats is going to change them to another group. The study is just saying, hey, you know, if you have two pe- two groups of people that are, if you have a big group of people who are six months out from ACL reconstruction, you can do this quick, dirty test and make some predictions. But it doesn't say you can do any, uh, it doesn't describe your intervention. Yeah, no, we can bang on about this for hours. I oh, love for it. sure. I'm not going to get through all my questions, Eric. I want to ask you, <laughs> in fact, this is the first question that I had written down. So, what what role, Eric, and this is going to be obvious, but I want you to just go through it from your perspective, if you don't mind. What what role should science play in physical therapy? Like, should it be the cornerstone or should it be a backwater peripheral uh, fringe kind of concept that we apply? And then I wanted I take you to take that a step further. And I want you to think about can the standards of robust science, you know, that we see in physics and chemistry and maybe to a lesser extent biology be applied to things that are murky like pain and psychology and sociology? So start with where should science be in PT and then how adequate do you think the scientific method is um, in physical therapy and explaining complexities of like pain, for example? Yeah, I mean, what I would like to see is would be studies that give us better understanding of our basic science of what underpins what we're doing and, and how we're doing it. Um, you know, simple things like, you know, if, and maybe, and I mean, we do have some, it, it, what's funny is it seems like we've all kind of gone this weird circuitous way to it. Like our understanding that manual therapy probably isn't changing somebody's tissue, but that could have been a very easy study. <laughs> done very quickly or a handful of studies to establish that if that was an intentional thing. But what we did instead is we kept looking at the effects of manual therapy as far as like the effects on pain, the effects on the patient. And we 
it was from all the conflicting evidence with that that we started to go, hey, wait a minute. You know what would underpin all of this if there were that if there weren't the specific effects we thought if they were all non-specific. But we could have been a whole lot more direct with that, and that's where I think um, physical therapy science should be, you know, driving itself in that way. Uh, the other thing would be to get us to be understanding probabilities better, and so. Patients are not all, all the same. We understand that, but we can use probabilities to start kind of categorizing them uh, to at least be more predictive. And we could even be predictive as how they respond to an intervention, even if we don't know the intervention's mechanisms. But you can see if you understand the mechanisms, you can be testing for the mechanisms in somebody. Uh, you know, back to the example with an antibiotic, you give a dosage of antibiotic to a patient and you test their, their blood and the bacteria has not changed. Well, this is a different kind of bug, uh, you know, a different kind of bacteria, or this person has such a raging case that the amount of antibiotics that you're throwing at it is not effective for this person. So being able to understand that, but that's that's a very mechanistic way to go about that. And and this is where, you know, someone breaks their leg, for example. Well, there's some very much, there's some very real, quote unquote, nociception going on there from that fracture. But there's also an experience of pain that that person is going through as well. And so you can, if we had a better understanding, we could understand on an individual case-by-case basis of how that interface is happening and how we're kind of working through that. This is where, you know, we have this kind of one-size-fits-all type thing of, you know, even within the pain science world is, oh, we just need to, quote-unquote, pain science our way through this. It's like, well... But there's a lot of complexity to that that's based on the individual. Uh, You know, people would also say, well, pain science understands that. It's like, yeah, but that's why it becomes so difficult to research is because it's not a one size fits all type thing. And it's very hard to control for it. Uh, It's very hard to set up a study for it. And so unless we can start categorizing patients better and and organizing things to go about it, you know, we're going to have a hard time kind of understanding the the roots of that. And, And that's where, you know, I do teach a lot about you know, psychological interventions in general, because a lot of what we do ends up being from that perspective. And my former uh, co-host from PT Inquest, J.W. Matheson, would say, you know, he likes to talk about the dodo effect. The dodo is a character from Alice in Wonderland that ran around and said, everybody wins and everybody gets gets prizes. And in psychology, what you'll find is any intervention works because what a patient needs from a psychological perspective is just somebody to listen to them and have compassion. Your intervention doesn't necessarily do that much after that. Um, it's just trying to give somebody a mirror to allow them to kind of work their way through their process. But that process is unique to the individual. And until you watch them go through the process, you don't know what the actual answer is for them. So just just on that, I've, I've got a paper coming out in PTJ in a week or so, and it, it's exactly what you said, which is, which is crazy. The universe is... Uh... <laughs> You're listening to the universe, the we're all connected, quantum consciousness, blah, 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 where I basically asked patients with shoulder pain what their experience was with exercise, right? And we found mm-hmm. that most people have had a positive experience with exercise under certain conditions and with certain caveats. And it was basically, did they get along with their clinician was number one. And okay. so I had patients see multiple different clinicians given almost the exact same exercises, but their response to the exact same exercise was different based on their relationship with their clinician. So if they trusted their clinician, there was therapeutic 
uh, alliance, blah, blah, all these buzzwords that we like to use, then they had a good result with exercise. And they probably would have had a good result with manual therapy, dry needling, acupuncture, yep. surgery, whatever you want to say, right? So so these interpersonal relational um, factors are super important. Yeah, so that's known as a congruence uh, from a Rogerian uh, psychotherapy perspective. And that's what I teach. Um, and again, I mentioned Socrates being kind of that root thing. And, and uh, Carl Rogers, who was the founder of Rogerian psychotherapy, is also how you get cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. All those things are kind of rooted in Rogerian psychotherapy. And it's this idea of you don't have the answers. It's just how do you reflect them back to the patient and allow the patient to be the driver of their their um, of their cure, so to speak, or their their process. And, and this gets into if I can divert just a little bit here to talk about Socrates, because this is one of those things we all know the Socratic method of you know you asking questions in order to teach. And, and I love asking people, well, why do you, why do you think Socrates thought that worked? And they're like, oh, well, because you're you're telling. Um, you're allowing them to find the answer for themselves and that's more useful to learn. It's like, nope, he didn't believe that. What he believed is that the knowledge acquired by another person is unique to them and it is a different knowledge than yours. And so you cannot transfer your knowledge to the other person. You can only give them a process for them to find their knowledge, which is going to be unique to them. So even the idea of two plus two equal four you understand that differently than I do just because we are different people. And that's what, what Socrates was believing. And so therefore, he also did not believe he needed to know the answer in order to teach somebody the answer. He just needed to have the ability to ask the questions to help guide them through the process, their own process to get that. And that's what that Rogerian psychotherapy is, is that you are still kind of just reflecting back to the person and letting them be like a third party viewer of their own problem. And kind of advise themselves through that. And so uh, I do the same thing for human movement. Uh, I don't believe that I can tell somebody the right way for their body to move, but I can try to create some uh, some inputs to the system, some information, some feedback uh, intuitively and let the organism start to find its best way to organize its movement. Uh, but I have no idea how that person sitting in front of me is supposed to be moving. So this sounds a bit like epistemological relativism where different people come to know different things in different ways which is different from an objective knowledge or um that we that we might have so i want do you are you is your ontology realism do you think there's a real world out there that we can come to know things about so would you say you're a realist and a subjectivist when it comes to epistemology or relativist when it comes to epistemology how would you describe yourself if i'm not getting too left field no, I'm definitely so, you know, you get into like postmodernism and some of this. And so the, the idea here is um, this gets into the difference between objective knowledge and subjective knowledge. And so like subjective knowledge would be, you know, your reality is different than my reality because of your, your you know, you're from a different country. Uh, you were brought up differently than I was. Uh, skin color being different, uh, you know, differences in gender, et cetera, et cetera. That makes these different realities for people. But we can all have a process to come at whether or not the sun goes around the earth or the earth goes around the sun. That's not, I can just believe whatever I want. Uh, I have to, there is a process for that. So that's that uh, objective knowledge. So there, uh, my belief structure is that there very much is a real world because the second you, you argue against that, you really start to lose a lot of ability to have anything really to work with there. And so I don't go to full relativism in that respect, but 
what I'm really getting at is more of that kind of psycho biopsychosocial philosophy of there's always a human being inside of the patient in front of you that has to have that engagement and and that interface with the real natural world. And so what I can do is I can manipulate the real natural world and then watch how that organism organizes around that world and help giving them environments for them to find their own, quote, truths, so to speak, from within their perspective of reality. So it's this weird kind of dualistic uh, kind of uh, view for that. You know, it'd be different if you're dealing with an animal that's not a human that you can't communicate with. The subjective experience there is going to be, you know, blunted, so to speak, compared to a, you know, a more cognitive being like a human. And so then you can be a little more just, you know, don't worry about the dog's experience, so to speak. You know, I, I think there are probably a bunch of dog trainers out there who would say, well, hold on a second. You have to get into the personality of that individual animal, and that's the way that you engage with them. And And I would just say it's probably not quite as diverse as, as well, your engagement won't be as diverse because of the difficulty of communication. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. So I, I think I'm the same. I think there's a real world out there. I think if a tree falls down, it probably makes a sound, even if there's nobody there to hear it. But yep. from a from a knowledge perspective, especially when we're dealing with pain and injury and suffering and all of this stuff, I think that people will experience that differently. And it's up to us as a clinician to kind of work with that and not just assume, okay, you have back pain, your back pain's like the next 100 people I'll see, therefore therefore I'll do this treatment just like everyone else. Well, I mean, and so this is where you can see, you know, uh, so here, um, you know, 10 kilograms of force makes this person say, ouch, but it doesn't make this person say, ouch. So what's the difference here? Now, there could be a structural thing that's that's something is broken or torn or whatever, but it could also just be a calibration issue. So this organism's sensors, so to speak, are not calibrated, quote, appropriately. So they're going off when they shouldn't be. So they perceive danger when there isn't. And it's like, you know, like an alarm, you know, the motion sensor in your front yard and that motion sensor, you want it to catch the burglar and go off. But you don't want it to catch, you know, go off when the fly goes by. And so you got to kind of calibrate that sensitivity there. And so, you know, a lot of times the patient's coming in and their alarm system's going off because of a fly. Well, it doesn't mean that you need to stop all the flies. <laughs> you need to make it not be so sensitive to flies and make it be sensitive to the thing it's supposed to be sensitive to. And so, again, this is where, you know, two people, it's a perception thing. It's a, it's a sensitivity thing. And that's more than, quote, in your head. That's an entire organism you know, from the nervous system through the physical, all the way into its interface with the physical world and those biomechanics. Uh, and I reckon and it's an influence like generational too, right? With genetics and all this stuff as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, from a genetics perspective, and then also the, your cultural, you know, this is where the word meme, uh, interestingly, we, we think of it as, as a certain thing, but meme is actually a term that was coined by Richard Dawkins. And it, it's a it, it's a play on the word genes. So you have your genes, which is your DNA that is kind of your it's inherited in your DNA from your ancestors. But a meme is the same type of inheritage or, or heritage that's inherited that's cultural that is becomes woven into your being the same way your dna is and so it's these things that are handed down culturally as well that influence um you know what you're you know this is where you know certain cultures are afraid of certain animals and other cultures aren't <laughs> you know where they're totally fine with with that and it's just a matter of culturally how it's been instilled into them they don't have the same physiological response as somebody else to the same stimulus 
but it has nothing to do with their quote genetics, but it is they're you know handed down through them through their ancestry still. Yeah, and both tricky and sticky and hard to change, you know, memetics right. and genetics like equally will will sort of influence a person's perspective on the world. And it's so fascinating to think that. And when we deal with science, right, there's this whole Western wealthy science that we study people and we sort of neglect the rest of the 90% of the world. And we just go, ah, you just must be like Western white people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, you know, in, in getting into, because sometimes people will like vilify like, like quote unquote Western science. It's like, well, the scientific process, yeah, it does come from, you know, originally from Aristotle up from the Greeks and, and through like that, but it's it's a non-cultural process. And this is where, you know, postmodernists would particularly disagree with me and say, well, no, it's it, as you were just talking, it's a it's part of the meme. It's part of this, this and it's like, well, but the point of it is to get away from all subjectivism and get strictly into an objective type thing. So what I like to point out is that. You know, I mentioned, you know, whether or not the earth goes around the sun, that's a question that can be answered in a scientific way. Whether or not I love my wife is not a question that could be answered through a scientific method, but that doesn't make my love for my wife any less real than whether or not the earth goes around the sun. And so it's just a matter of trying not to conflate these things or trying to apply a scientific method to a thing. Because you could talk about like, the belief structures of an indigenous population, is that not real? It's like, well, you know, any sort of story has its, you know, its utility in the culture, which is a very real thing. And it's a way of interpreting. I mean, sometimes I'll even tell somebody, we'll do like a, a hip, uh, hip flexion activity, like post-surgical and a, and a arthroscopic uh, hip procedure where I have them do like a caudal glide with one hand as they pull the the knee up into flexion and they find they go way further. And I go, I want you to imagine that you're pushing the head of that femur out of the socket as you're pulling it up. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I totally feel that. So, okay, that's not happening at all. But you believing that happens is what you're doing is what is driving the actual push that's making this interface do the thing that it's doing for whatever reason that it's doing it. And so, um, you know, science can't tell me why that perception does what it does. You know, there that that gets into psychology, which you know is arguable of how quote scientific you can be with that process. Um, but science can tell me whether or not that joint is moving. Okay, and so that's where pulling those things apart. It's 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 not trying to be a cultural thing. It's just trying to get at, uh, and and I think that's where the the conflict be, comes in is where. A quote unquote scientist says, stop acting like you're moving that joint because it's not moving. It's like, well, no, you can still act like it. You can still imagine it. You know, you know, sometimes you'll tell somebody to kick a ball and you want it to have the arc, uh, have it fly like a rainbow does. Well, they're not going to make it actually fly like a rainbow, but the idea of an arcing thing, it's just the storytelling that helps communicate between humans. Um, that doesn't have to necessarily have that quote scientific method through it i'm not sure that i'm making any sense no there's a there's a uh, so we're, we're both going to say a lot of quotes here and there's a quote that comes directly to mind it's a theory or a belief system doesn't have to be completely right for it to be helpful right exactly yeah the, the same idea of uh you know all models are wrong but some models are useful <laughs> yep. uh to, to, for another quote but yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly it is that we we can't be perfect in our understanding of anything 
So every way that we understand something is a model. You're trying to be as accurate as you can, but you just understand that it's still a model, what I'm, what I'm doing, what I'm saying. I have these conversations with the patients all the time, uh, with the athletes in particular. It's like, I'm trying to put a load to this area here. Here's five different ways to do that. To me, they're all the same. But for whatever reason for you, exercise number three seems to really load it the right way for you. But on this other person, exercise number two was the one. And so I still have to wait for you to give me the interface to, to give me the answer as to what's the exercise we're going to do. Uh, and that's why I always teach exercises from a biomechanical perspective of think of the load profile you're trying to get and how many different ways you can get it. And then you play with it and let the patient tell you, because you're like, I need to get a load profile in this way. Here are all the different avenues to do that. But I have to have the athlete tell me which is the one they're going to select. And you could say, well, that's purely their perception. It's like, well, but do you really know the anatomy of this individual? Maybe the fibers of their muscle where their tendon issue is happens to line up to slightly different between these two exercises that's more nuanced than your understanding. And you actually found the right exercise from a biomechanical perspective, not just from the interface with that individual. Uh, and who are you to say, which is the better one? The patient has to tell you. Yeah. And Eric, another thing you've just reminded me of again is um, one of these famous studies, these twin studies here in Australia, where they take literal identical twins, they give them exercises to do, and these genetically exact same human literal beings clones. respond differently to different ex to the same exercise. Isn't that just mind-boggling? And then yep. and then we expect athletes to respond the same, right? It's just silly when you actually look at it from a deep perspective. Oh, I mean, I don't want to get into, you know, the identity of a person because you get into, you know, like multiverse type ideas where, you know, there's a, there's a universe where you made a different decision in your life. And so now you're this different direction. And so is that they're, they're ready you? in quantum mechanics? I love it. Let's go there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a really cool thought experiment where uh, you, you go to the future and they have a teleporter and the way the teleporter works is you step into the teleporter and it makes a perfect copy of you down to the molecule and builds it like so you're you're in uh, Australia it builds it in London and at the same time it builds it in London and you appear in London and your memories everything are still intact you're you're teleported to London it destroys what the thing that was there in Australia so then the question is if there's a malfunction and the machine doesn't destroy you in Australia and they're like, oh, sorry, it was a malfunction, but you're in London. Uh, we're going to go ahead and kill you here in Australia. Who's the real you? The, the, the one that ended up in London. And, and so this gets into what makes us even who we are. Uh, and that's where those twin studies, because essentially they are clones upon birth. But the second they're born, their identities diverge because identity comes from experience. And so, yeah, I, you know, I don't want to get too metaphysical, but... Totally. No, totally. And so, and we, and if we extrapolate that to just generally seeing unique patients, we have to expect there's going to be some variance perhaps in how we should treat people. I mean, this is kind of basic shit, but I think it's important yeah. to say. Well, and that's where, you know, as I teach, it's like, be very hesitant as how you're interacting with your patients. It very much is a, a little bit of a poke, poke. How do they, how do they respond to that? Poke, poke. How do they respond to that? Okay, here we go. Here we go. Here's a little more. And, and, you know, as you get more experience, you start to get a sense of pretty much everybody responds this way to this. It's not until I get to my second visit that I start to see them diverge. And so that's where you're, you're kind of moving through that, that process. And, and to me, I think that's what experience gets you if you're honest with yourself. 
Yeah. No, I'm agree. Let's. Um, I'm going to ask you one or two more questions, all right? Then I'll let you go and have some drinks for Fourth of July over there in the US. For sure. So, for clinicians, let's try and let's try and bring this back to clinical practice. Always important, rather than just talking about metaphysics and philosophy of science. <laughs> Whether your identity is real. <laughs> That's right. I had another example which we could use, but we'll save that. I want to. How do clinicians use, or how should they use science in their practice? And this can be broad sciences can be like behavioral experiments or it can be like how do they use evidence in practice how should they use and engage with science in clinical practice i think the biggest thing is to challenge your uh certainty and give you that exercise in alternative explanations of things and using science to kind of explore through that so for example when i read an article what i do is you know people get into uh, are you looking at the uh are, are you looking at the, you know, the the statistics? What kind of analysis they did? Is that p value really accurate? You know, what about those confidence intervals? Like, no, 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 no. Just read what they did, read what they're concluding, and then take a step back and ask yourself, what are all the other ways I could have explained what what just happened in this study? That you should immediately be able to write a list down of all the different ways that you could have explained it. Then read the actual paper. I mean, you can get that from the abstract right off the bat. Then read the actual paper and see, did they actually answer these things? Because if they did, then, oh, wow, that conclusion has some, a little more weight to it. But if they absolutely ignored all these confounders that you pop, that popped in your head, well, keep holding on to those confounders. And so this is, as I was talking about before, that, that idea of generating all these alternative hypotheses, that's where you then go to the literature where you're trying to clean that, up, that list up and just be like, you know what, these couple studies here really showed us that it's, you know, for example, you did a manual therapy intervention. You said, oh, I, I moved this person's rib. That's one of your alternative hypotheses. You have these other ones of it's just the interface with me. It was just my, my uh, I'm coming across as being very skilled and being very compassionate. You know, uh, just making physical contact with a human has a, an effect on them, et cetera, et cetera. These are all, all these explanations you could have. If you go to the literature and it shows that you absolutely are not moving that rib, or moving it to a new space. Well, you can then clean that off your list and say, well, and, and then if a patient says to you, I need you to put that rib in this spot here, you can say with all honesty, and this gets into a Rogerian approach to interacting with a patient, is you try to find some sort of congruence where you would say, you know, I used to think that. That makes a ton of sense. Here's why I would think that the rib is moving because I put all this force and, you know, and, you, and it feels like it's kind of out and this, that. But there was a study where they actually looked at this and it turns out that rib didn't move. This is the patient interaction. This is what's coming from the science is that you're able to communicate the science to the patient, but you notice how I didn't finish the thought. I didn't say, therefore, I just said that study showed it didn't move. What do they do with that? Oh, but I still like it. Well, well so why does it make me feel better? I don't know. Here's some ideas I've been wrestling with myself. What do you think? And the patient says, well, I think it's because God comes in through the, you know, whatever. It could be something that's totally out of your belief cycle. It doesn't matter. You can just go, well, we can try it and see how it feels for you. And for whatever reason, you know, there you go. But I can tell you categorically, it's not a rib, you know, moving in this way. And the patient might go, I don't care. I think it's the rib. Well, fine. And, you know, you handed it to them and they came to their own conclusions. But that's, that's kind of that handoff. And so to me, that's what research is really how it's really applied in the clinic is allowing you to have a deeper knowledge. And so that example I just gave there, you know, this is when people say, well, patients don't want to come in and have you say, I don't know. You're supposed to be the expert. You can't say, I don't know. Things are uncertain. It's like, explain why you don't know. 
explain the journey. Explain, I used to think this, but this study over here showed that. And then this other study over here said this. And then some, sometimes the patient's like, wow, I'm really confused. So what should I do? And you say, well, here are some options. Here are the kind of here are the types of explanations patients have given me in the past as to why they chose this option. Here are the explanations I've heard in the past for choosing this option over here. Does any of those sound like it's in line with what you feel? And let them make that decision from there. You know, some people like to do exercise because a lot of times patient walks into a physical therapist's office, they're there for exercise. That's why they walked in that door. The people who don't want exercise didn't walk in the door. And so, yeah, you can offer exercise. They're here for it. That doesn't mean that everybody out there on the street with the same diagnosis needs exercise. It just means that, that, that there's a selection bias of what walked in. Perfectly fine to say, yeah, you can do some exercise for it. It's not going to hurt anything. Let's see if you feel better by doing some exercise. And just the, the belief of them doing something can be what's helping them. This is why you know a patient, a patient will then go get crystals. They believe that the crystals are doing something. So the act of going to do, get the crystals that is what is making them feel better, just that they feel like they are in control and autonomous uh, as opposed, and that could be what exercise does. It just would be nice to know. Well, yeah, let's find <laughs> that's how out. It worked. And, and just, just on that, the, did you see that mediation analysis which came out this week on that sensory motor training program? It basically found that back beliefs almost mediated the entire treatment effect of exercise and education. So Not surprised at all. Yeah. Not surprised at all. And so that's where, you know, what you know, a patient goes to a chiropractor and says that that felt better. Well, yeah, you a hundred percent believe that that was going to make you feel better. There were studies yeah. done at a Harvard where they basically put signs up and they're like to recruit people to an acupuncture study. And the, the, the advertisement says, would you like to, to, um, prove the ways that acupuncture works? Well, that's automatically going to select a bunch of people who believe acupuncture works. And so then they shammed it and did sham acupuncture versus real acupuncture and show that it was extremely effective in both regards. It's like, well, yeah, you have a population that strongly believes it's going to work. Uh, if you put up the same thing of want to disprove acupuncture and think it's a bunch of garbage, uh, you'll find that there's no effect from sham or real acupuncture. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, patient beliefs, that is much bigger when the patient's belief and the therapist's beliefs align, then that nonspecific effect is going to be huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and as I always say, there's nothing wrong with a nonspecific effect, but that's not where we're intentional. Our specific effects are where we're intentional. So if it is a nonspecific effect, I want to know that and I want to lay that to the patient and just go, yeah, you can absolutely exercise. Exercise may be a path for you to achieve what you're trying to achieve, but there's lots of different paths uh, for you to do that. And so if you commit to that path and stay committed to it, evidence shows that people tend to feel better. But of course, people who are not doing very well tend to not be committed to the path because they don't think it's working. <laughs> and so yeah, exactly. that doesn't mean if they would have been, say, committed, that they would have had a good outcome. They probably would have just been miserable doing their exercises. Yeah. And just back to what you were saying a moment ago, Eric, about uncertainty in clinical practice. There's a, there's a belief, I think, from clinicians that if you show uncertainty, that the patient will mistrust you or go to another clinician or something like that. 
And I think that's that's wrong. This my colleague Natalia Costa, who's a great qualitative researcher here in Australia, has shown that people, that clinicians who actually say they're uncertain about something, but then, as you said, say why they're uncertain and offer alternative hypotheses, as you said again. And this is all the list of reasons why this intervention may work or may not work based on you as an individual, blah, 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 blah. Then the patient actually feels like that clinician is authentic. They're honest. They're telling the truth. And they're not just trying to be some authoritarian dictator. Yep. Yep. So think of uh, buying a used car. You go to buy the used car. If the person that's selling you the car is extremely certain about how amazing this car is and how you know, it handles perfectly and it's never had an issue. And it's, you know, this is that uh, it turns, oh, and you ask the question, well, how does it, how does it corner? Oh, better than any car that's ever, you know, gone around a, a track in any way. You, immediately, you're going to stop trusting that person. But if their response was, you know, I, I don't know, let's jump in and see that you're going to trust that person so much more if they're having the conversation with you. And when they don't know something, they're happy to explain how they don't know why they don't know. And, and, ways for the two of you together to answer the questions for the the person who is the client trying to have a, their problem solved. Bingo. Beautiful. I think that's a, uh, a really neat wrap up to today's conversation. Eric, you've been the voice of a generation, my friend. I, I really want to thank you for all your hard work. Continue to do the hard work. We all want to hear what you have to say. And I've, I've really enjoyed today's conversation. So thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. It's a big fan of what you're doing uh, nowadays and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you, mate. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Eric Mira. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Tiribalang people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning, and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.